is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More questions and answers now about the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. How long was the shooter inside a classroom full of kids? Why was a door to the school unlocked? And where was a school resource officer? Why didn't police rush in immediately? We'll go in-depth and try to get some answers. We've uh, asked why other countries have figured out how to stop mass shootings. So we will go to New Zealand, where major gun control reform was recently passed. Actor Kevin Spacey now looking at sexual assault charges in the U.K. We'll look at the cases there. The former president, Mr. Trump, ordered to answer questions under oath about his business dealings. Will he really testify? CEOs are getting way bigger raises than regular workers are. And the new Top Gun movie comes out tomorrow. We'll talk with a retired fighter pilot and Top Gun instructor about life in the supersonic sky. You're going to see it? I'm going to see it. Yeah, same yeah. here. We begin, though, with the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Back with us is Sanford uh, Nowlin, who's editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Current. Thank you very much uh, again for your time and, and joining us. Uh, I, I watched the news conference earlier, and, uh, you know, what comes out of it is two days in more confusion than clarity. Do you agree? Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I think that has been the uh, uh, that that has been sort of a, a a chorus coming from members of the media who have been trying to follow this. Right? Uh, you know, we we were originally uh, told by uh, DPS uh, officials that uh, you know the. Uh, district uh, police officer, um, you know, in- engaged or exchanged fire with this with this person as they they tried to enter the school or once they entered the the school, and then now we're being told, well, that may not have happened. We can't necessarily confirm that. Um, you know, uh, uh, by the uh, head of the DPS's own admission, it could have been forty minutes to an hour that this this gunman was. Uh, you know, uh, uh, loose inside the school. Uh, and there have been very disturbing videos that have been popping up showing frantic parents begging, uh, the local police to rush the school. Uh, and in some cases being shouted at and told to go back across the street, you know, um, it's, I, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been in Texas long enough to have, uh, to covered some of, you know, these incidents from from afar, I have not been there, you know, on the ground as these things unfold necessarily as an editor. But, uh, you know, the video is, is nonetheless disturbing. So what's your sense in, in how this is actually happening? Because the story is changing in, in massive ways, and some of this should be pretty easy to figure out. I mean, one of the first things that happens in a police investigation is you get the gun that was apparently fired and see how many rounds are left. And then, that, I mean, that was a two-day-ago thing that could have been said not today and they still haven't said anything about it yeah yeah i i have i have read uh that you know the 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 texas rangers have been called in and they're going to be looking at stuff like that you know presumably the ballistics and and setting up a timeline of what actually happened in the meantime uh uh joaquin castro the uh um congressman uh who represents the san antonio area um has sent a letter to FBI director Ray uh, asking him to open an investigation into this because we're, you know, two days later 
And there's a block of time, as he points out, between 11.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. local time that has yet to be fully accounted for. Uh, and he notes that onlookers allege that parents unsuccessfully uh, urged law enforcement officers to enter the building during that time and, and confront the shooter. Now, in, in fairness, uh, of course, to the law enforcement folks down there, uh, you know, it is a small town. Uh, you know that better than, than I do. Uh, and they had multiple law enforcement agencies converging on that, that sure. town in, in a very, I'm sure, hectic situation. So a certain amount of, of, of miscommunication, uh, misinformation is likely to follow. That being said, uh, I've covered a number of these things as well. And uh, there was this air, I have to admit, watching the news conference of it was kind of in that phase where everyone seemed to be trying to cover their you-know-what. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we're going into a highly charged uh, election this fall. Um, and I, I think it's something that, you know, politics should stay out of. But uh, I, I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out, um, you know, just how much of that is, is an attempt to you know, shield the states, um, you know, the, the way the, the state has, has overseen this and the way that the state has, has coordinated this. Sanford Nolan, editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Current, and also joining us now is Mark Barden, who's co-founder and CEO of Sandy Hook Promise Action Fund. His son, Daniel, was killed in the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, and, uh, uh, Mark, welcome to the program. Uh, we'll get to you in, in one second, but I want to finish off uh, something or a line of thought with Sanford. Uh, at the news conference, uh, some of uh, the uh, uh, confusion seemed to be centered on how the gunmen managed to get into the school because the door was, I gathered, supposed to have been locked, but it, it appeared as if it wasn't locked, although the the person doing the news conference didn't seem to even know that for sure. Do you know whether or not, is that a, uh, a standard thing in Texas schools, elementary schools, to keep uh, doors to the outside locked during classroom time? I know that there has been an effort to harden, um, I'm making air quotes as I say at schools, <clears throat> in the wake of all these shootings we've had. Uh, but I, I couldn't tell you whether all out side doors are supposed to be locked. It would certainly seem to make sense. But I mean, there's a lot about this that certainly seems to defy what we thought we knew about how these these incidents were handled. And one of the most confusing and I think alarming things to a lot of people is that, you know, in the wake of the Columbine High School shooting of 1999, when a, a number of students and, and uh, teachers were, were shot, Law enforcement, you know, again, sort of hung around the outside and waited to mount uh, mount a, uh, a, re a retaliatory strike. Uh, and in the wake of that, um, you know, a lot of us understood that that was a tactic that they had stopped using, that instead police are now trained to immediately enter and immediately try to subdue the shooter, even if they're flying solo, even if there is not a great number of, of police uh, gathered at the site. And, you know, just from what we've seen on the video, that certainly suggests that's not what happened here, which would seem to upend a lot of what 
we've been told about how, you know, law enforcement handles these situations. Mark, let's bring you in. Thanks for speaking to us. Uh, Your thoughts on just, first off, this kind of thing happening again, and then what we're seeing two days later, all these different questions and and the video of the the parents that were out there just pleading and and, and screaming, trying to get into that school when, when they thought the police weren't doing anything. Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me on. And, you know, my first thoughts when this was uh, unfolding on Tuesday, uh, obviously, as with any of the numerous mass shootings that uh, continue to occur in, in the United States, are with those families, because I know firsthand um, what those first moments and hours and days and weeks feel like. And it's just of dis- despair and anguish and shock. And, you know, my wife and I have been kind of tracking along with the, with, with the timeline, thinking back to when, you know, we were in these moments uh, as these families are now and trying to comprehend the fact that their child was shot to death in their elementary school. And um, as incomprehensible incompre- as it sounds, you know, here we are watching this unfold again. And with regard to, you know, I've seen a snippet of that video of the police holding the parents back and I'm not sure what's going on there. I think there's a lot of questions, a lot of investigating needs to be done. I will tell you that uh, in, in the aftermath of, of a chaotic event like that, uh, there's a whole lot of sorting out to do. Uh, sometimes news agencies can be quick to report on things before all the facts and evidence are available. Uh, and I think it's just gonna take some time to sort through um, what happened and how this response was managed and how we can hopefully learn from it going forward. But my my, you know, my focus in my organization, Sandy Hook Promise, is to prevent this from happening in the first place. It's not in the response after it's already too late. Uh, we're working hard to to prevent these uh, acts of these atrocities from happening uh, in the first place. Well, uh, along those lines, and again, uh, I, I hesitate to prejudge uh, too much what transpired down there, uh, you know, 48 hours ago, having not been there, uh, but since you've gone through this type of experience, unfortunately, in your own life, and you've had all these years to sort of mull over things that should have been done, that could have been done differently, from what you know of what has happened in Uvalde, Texas, do you already see some things that you find perhaps disturbing that, in your view, could have perhaps prevented this? Well, you know, uh, the, the reality is is that just about every time uh, we look back at one of these uh, atrocities after they happen, uh, we see that there are warning signs, and there there were warning signs before it happened. Uh, and with mass shootings and with suicides and and other uh, catastrophic events, we we know that there are almost always warning signs, and that's where I focus my work with Sandy Hook Promise, is we train students in schools how to look for and recognize those warning signs, and then. Uh, enlist the help of a trusted adult uh, who can uh, address the situation appropriately and connect that individual to whatever help or services they might need uh, before it gets more serious or before a tragedy can happen. Uh, And that's what we do at Sandy Hook Promise. And we've seen it work and it works well. And we have prevented uh, numerous, uh, I think that we can speak to uh, at least nine school shootings that were planned and ready to happen that students who, who were able to recognize the warning signs we're able to intervene and prevent it from happening, as well as hundreds of suicides. Uh, so we know there are warning signs in advance, and we know those warning signs present an opportunity uh, to connect somebody to help before it becomes a tragedy. 
Mark Barden, co-founder, CEO, Sandy Hook Promise. Thank you. And Sanford Nallen, editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Current. A little bit later in the program, we're going to be talking Top Gun, the movie. No, not really. We're going to talk. We're not going to talk about that because we haven't seen it yet. No. You haven't seen it. But I wonder if the person we're talking to has. Well, uh, even if he didn't, he is a, <laughs> he real, a, yeah. he's a real Top Gun instructor or was a real Top Gun instructor. So we're going to find out the ins and outs of being a Top Gun gun person if you're not Tom Cruise. Right now, though, we've talked about how other countries took quick action to try to stop mass shootings. We brought up Australia. There's also New Zealand's country banned most semi-automatic and assault weapons following the shootings at two mosques in Christchurch that left more than 50 people dead in 2019. With us now is Philippa Yazbek, co-founder of Gun Control NZ in Wellington, New Zealand right now. Thanks for being with us. So how long after those events happened did it take to get these laws into place? Uh, the first set of laws banning assault weapons went into place in, I think, a little bit over 10 days. Wait, did you say 10 days? Yeah, 10 days. Well, nothing in this in, in the U.S. happens years in, to in do 10 something. days. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that unusual, or do things tend to go through pretty quickly there? Um, it is unusual. Usually a law takes sort of six months to a year to pass. Um, but New Zealanders do like to brag about having the, the fastest parliaments in the West. Um, we also had a similar legislative response to COVID. So take us through how that happened so fast in 10 days, though. Was it just a known kind of ground swelling that we can't let this happen again? I mean, what was it like at the time? Um, well, it was truly shocking because New Zealand has a population of about 5 million people, so similar to, to uh, Los Angeles City. Um, and the last mass shooting was in 1992, and we all thought that we'd got similar gun laws to Australia and we were all safe and nothing was going to happen here. Um, but it turns out we were wrong and our politicians had neglected our laws. And it was truly, truly shocking to see 50 people dying on one day. Norm in a normal year, about 10 people die in gun violence in New Zealand. So that was a huge increase on what we've previously seen. And it was it was really shocking for all of us. And the prime minister came out the day afterwards and said, we've got to do something about our gun laws. That was a purely instinctual response. I don't think anyone had been briefing her or telling her that's what she needed to do. She just saw the problem and decided to act on it. Was there any opposition at all uh, or was everybody on board with this? Uh, there was a, a very small amount of opposition. I think um, the opinion polling said that about 80% of New Zealanders were very much in favour of the changes. And um, there was one one parliamentarian who, who voted against the changes, and our gun lobby were also quite fiercely opposed to the changes at the time. You mentioned low rates of gun violence. What kind of rates of, of gun ownership did you have, do you have? Um, the rates are relatively high, well, probably not high compared to the U.S., but high compared to other parts of the world. There are about 250,000 people who are licensed to own firearms. Um, so I guess that's uh, one in 20 people um, have a license to own firearms. And firearms are quite popular in New Zealand. Um, in rural areas, they get used a lot for pest control. Okay, so so this law is passed in 10 days there. Uh, you haven't had, uh, to my knowledge, any mass shootings since, right? 
But uh, is there much other gun violence, you know, robberies, that sort of thing, committed with guns um, nonetheless? There is there is a bit of gun violence. I mean, obviously not on the same scale as what you see in the U.S., um, but we do have a, a problem at the moment with um, gangs and crime groups who generally sell methamphetamine um, have been engaged in a bit of a, a uh, tit-for-tat war in Auckland most particularly. So the other night it was in the news across the entire country. Um, someone went driving around and fired shots into six different houses, and that was kind of headline news. When things happen here, like what we've just seen, what's the coverage there like? I mean, is the commentary, this has happened in America again, it only happens in America? What What is it presented like over there? It is. It, it does get coverage, and people are aware of it. Um, but I think everyone shakes their heads and just, you know, is quite surprised by the fact that Americans can't change their laws because we do know what works, banning assault weapons, um, you know, having better controls on who's allowed to use a firearm. Those things all work to, to stop mass shootings and there never seems to be any political will to make those changes in the U.S. Um, there are lots of U.S. advocates for, for change, but it just never seems to feed through the politicians. There seems to be a an obsession with winning a political argument uh, rather than doing the right thing for most people. Philippa Yasbeck, a co-founder, Gun Control NZ in uh, Wellington, New Zealand. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Kevin Spacey largely disappeared from Hollywood following an allegation of sexual assault on an 18-year-old man and uh, claimed that he made unwanted advances on a teenage boy in the 80s. Now, the sexual assault allegation led to charges in Massachusetts that were later dropped. Now, Spacey is dealing with new sex assault charges. Uh, this time out, it is the U.K. where they say the charges are involving three men. Where this is our old friend. Well, he's not old, but he's our old friend, Darren, <laughs> <laughs> Darren Adam. How's that for an intro? Well, yeah. Bad, I suppose. Yeah, presenter at LVC Radio out of London. Darren, uh, welcome back to the to the show. So uh, what can you tell us about these uh, charges? And, and I guess I should say up front that he hasn't been formally charged, if I'm right. correct, and can't be unless he's actually physically in the UK. That is correct. The Crown Prosecution Service, which in the UK doesn't decide, obviously, whether someone is guilty, but it makes assessments about whether it's appropriate to present charges for a criminal court and essentially assesses the relative likelihood of success in, in such a process. They have authorised criminal charges against Kevin Spacey for four counts of sexual assault against three men. He's also been charged with causing a person to engage in penetrative sexual activity without consent, and those charges follow a review of the evidence gathered by London's police service, the Metropolitan Police, in its investigation. So as, as you correctly say, Charles, he has not been formally charged. He can't be as he's not in the country. But this potentially begins the process. It authorises those criminal charges and it suggests that the Crown Prosecution Service certainly believe that there is a, uh, a reasonable chance of prosecution if this goes and when this goes to court. So he just uh, won't fly to the UK. But is there any talk about, you know, an extradition process? Again, the Crown Prosecution Service say they cannot confirm or deny whether he will need to be extradited to the UK. Of course, he's an American citizen, but the CPS, at least as it relates to these charges or the, these authorised potential charges, 
the Crown Prosecution Service say they cannot confirm or deny whether that will be uh, the case at this stage. Well, short of, I don't know, inviting him to one of Boris Johnson's parties, is there a way of compelling him to go? There doesn't seem to be. I imagine the Crown Prosecution Service would have confirmed uh, whether that was possible, given the, the, I mean, let's not forget the very serious nature of these charges. Um, There doesn't yet appear to be any indication that he will be or can be or what the process might be. And it is worth just remembering that those are very serious charges, four charges of sexual assault, three in London, uh, two in 2005, one in 2008, another one in Gloucestershire, in April 2013, but also in London in 2008, one charge of causing a person to engage in penetrative sexual activity without consent. So these are serious charges. And because there are obviously no names here of anyone bringing these complaints, we we don't know to what extent, if any, these relate to any previous controversies that Kevin Spacey has been uh, allegedly involved in. Does this kind of line up with the years that he was running some sort of theatre company or something there? Because he was involved in the UK at this time. Indeed so. He was the artistic director of the Old Vic Theatre, which is maybe a mile or two from where I'm sitting right now on the the South Bank in London, just on the south side of the River Thames. He was the artistic director of that theatre between 2004 and 2015. Now, you will recall, of course, that various accusations were made against Kevin Spacey at the time when he uh, ultimately lost his role in House of Cards and he ceased being the artistic director of that theatre. But yes, the period during which he was in that role at the Old Vic between 2004 and 2015. It certainly seems that, yes, all of these charges which have been authorised by the CPS do relate to that time period. Uh, I'm curious, Darren, am I correct that the sort of rules of uh, what can be discussed publicly about these sort of charges in the press in the UK might be somewhat more stringent or different than they are in this country? Well, I can tell you that they are very strict here in the UK. The Crown Prosecution Service remind us that there should be no reporting, commentary or sharing of information online which could in any way prejudice these proceedings. And that, of course, relates to social media as well. So uh, a casual user of, user of social media would be well advised not to speculate in any way on any social media platform about this. And it's also worth remembering as well that this assessment, in the words of the CPS, is not in any sense a finding of or implication of any guilt or criminal conduct. It's not a finding of fact. So, yes, it is the case, and rightly so, I think, that in this country there are very strict rules about online speculation or speculation elsewhere when it comes to live criminal cases, not least because of the danger of then prejudicing that trial. Darren Adam, presenter at LBC Radio out of London. Well, former President Trump may have to talk under oath a New York State appeals court ruling he must answer questions in the state's civil investigation into his business dealings. The former president's two oldest children also ordered to testify. Will they ever actually do so? Jan Ronis, a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, extensive experience working in New York and in the federal court system. Jan, thanks for being here. So uh, what do you think the odds are that they actually do sit down to talk? Well, we've been waiting this for a number of, of years, and so it depends upon whether an appellate court intervenes and stops the proceeding. But if that doesn't happen pretty soon, then this uh, this inquiry is going to take place uh, sooner than we can imagine. Now, as we all know, Mr. Trump certainly does not shy away from litigation. Is there any way, in your view, he could try to move this into the federal courts and prolong it even more? 
Well, I mean, certainly the federal courts would be within the the review uh, process if he chooses to do that, but that, that's going to be a pretty cumbersome uh, process. I mean, as much as he might like mitigation litigation, I don't think he's any fan of having to testify himself. <clears throat> so this is kind of a new uh, threat to him in that uh, you know he's going to be questioned under oath and he's going to be compelled to answer truthfully, and so this may present a dilemma for him on some of these kind of delicate issues that, you know, he, that, that the inquiry is investigating. Right. So the argument from his lawyers is um, we can't do this in the civil investigation because there's this criminal one and I can't say anything. And it's tricky when they run parallel. But this can't be the first time that there's been parallel investigations. And, and is that a valid argument to make? Well, he certainly has the right. And you're going to excuse me. There's some construction going on outside my office building. <laughs> no worries. Said he certainly has a right against self-incrimination. He could always assert his Fifth Amendment right. Uh, against self-incrimination, if for some reason he chooses to do so, that is, uh, you know, that's something that's embarrassing for anybody, particularly a former president, to entertain. But nobody can deprive him of his ability to refuse to answer questions based upon the fact that what he might say might tend to incriminate him, whether it's a civil or uh, criminal investigation. So that right remains, uh, you know, something that he can avail himself of. And, in fact, I understand one of his sons did in as part of this investigation and, in fact, did assert the fifth. Would any testimony that he gives be available to the public? Well, um, I don't know to what extent the investigation is, is you know, secretive and closed to the public. But ultimately, yes, I mean, depositions are ultimately present, presented for public view. Grand jury proceedings are oftentimes presented for public view at some point in the criminal process, when, in fact, it's a criminal investigation. So I, I'm sure that at some point... His answers to those questions would be a matter of, you know, public uh, uh, review, but it may maybe not too early in the process. But his biggest concern, I think, is just having to talk at all. What about the Trump team argument that, uh, you know what, all this is politically motivated, nothing more than that? Well, I mean, listen, let's be honest. I, I, there, there is probably a political component to this. There's a political component to most everything in life. So I, I understand their feeling about that. Um, I, I'm sure that the, the Attorney General of New York is driven as much by politics, I hate to admit it, uh, as pe- perhaps Mr. Trump is. But the fact is there is a compelling uh, interest in her pursuing this investigation, regardless of what her her motives might be, as long as she can make a, a showing that, in fact, this is a legitimate investigation. I don't see, you know, the political component as something that's going to derail the investigation. And, and in New York, what would the penalty, penalty be if he decided he just didn't want to do it? He didn't want to well, testify? There is always, I mean, if anybody refuses to respond to it in order to appear before a proceeding or appear for a deposition, something of that nature, there is a contempt. He could be held in contempt uh, and fined and or even jailed for refusal to follow a legitimate court order. I don't think it's going to get to that point. Um, You know, it's going to be interesting to see whether if it gets to the point where he's compelled to testify, he asserts a fifth or, or testifies in a really delicate inquiry in that it appears as though they're investigating, at least in the parallel criminal investigation, alleged criminal activity. Any other delay tactics? Because that's always been a strategy, is push this as far along as you can. So where else is the maneuvering going to happen? Well, he say, hey, yeah, criminal matter's not over, so I can't do the civil thing. It, put a pause on that for yeah, me. I don't think there's a. I don't think that's the answer, That because there's a criminal investigation. The answer is whether he takes the fifth. And, and President Trump, former President Trump, has been real good at delaying proceedings, and he's been very successful. He certainly was, I think, throughout the entirety of his presidency to duck subpoenas and things of that nature. And I, you know, he's a formidable opponent, 
And so I don't, I, don't, I don't rule them out in terms of having to testify, but let's wait and see what happens. And, and so that people understand, this case is, is fundamentally about, if I'm correct, uh, whether or not Mr. Trump overvalued his real estate holdings uh, in order to get bank loans, but undervalued his holdings when filing taxes. Is that right? Simply stated that they cook, cook the books to take advantage of loan opportunities and cook the books to take advantage of lower tax rates. That's essentially uh, the nature of the investigation. But, but is that something that is, and I, I, you know, I get it that, that you know, true rights don't make a wrong, but is that something that is kind of common in real estate circles? <laughs> well, there's a lot of common criminal activity that doesn't get uncovered. When you're the president of the United States and you're above the radar and you engage in criminal activity, and I don't know whether you did or didn't, I just know what the allegations are, you kind of expose yourself to greater scrutiny than the average person who might apply for a, a car loan and inflate their income that's likely to never come before the authorities. So is it common? It probably is common. Is it right? Of course it's not right. It would, just happens all the time. Would they teach us in school just because everybody else is doing it? Does not well, mean that you should do it too? Well, like I often tell, tell clients it's just your turn to be picked on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Jan Ronis, uh, criminal defense attorney and uh, legal analyst, extensive experience out there in New York. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Workers around the country have been mostly making more money. New data recently found wages and benefits rose of 4.5%, almost 4.5% in 2021, fastest on record going back to 2001. And that sounds great, except when you compare it to the pay raises CEOs have been getting. Their pay has increased more than 17 percent to a median $14.5 million. Now, that means half of the country's CEOs are making more than $14.5 million a year. Is it really deserved? Well, let's talk to a CEO and find out. With us is Justin Abrams, CEO of Cause of a Kind, which is a Web 2 and Web 3 design and development agency. Justin, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So I guess my, my, my first question to you is, are, are you like stuffing the money in your mattress and your employees are in the bread line or what's going on? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, um, <laughs> we, we actually discussed this very openly with our team. Um, you know, I'm a bootstrap startup business. I, I threw away a 15 year career of doing this professionally and watching CEOs that fit exactly into your, 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 your speculation, I would say. Um, you know, what's really interesting about how we operate is I'm one of my team members. I still roll my sleeves up. I still operate as a member of my team and practice my craft to be competitive. So I pay myself accordingly. Um, you know, we, we certainly do have the means to be able to inflate our salaries, but it's certainly important for us to hire top talent, work on our marketing strategy, uh, ensure that we're bringing the best products, services, and solutions to our customers. Um, and we specifically focus on engaging with mission-driven and uh, charitable-backed organizations. So we definitely have to be conservative with the way that the executive team takes a rake from the company, for sure. And I think people get, you know, if you're leading the company, you're doing a, a really bang-up job, then yeah, you're going to get more money. But past a certain point, when you look at some of the, the people who are really raking it in out there, do you start to think, are they actually worth that? I mean, what are they doing that makes them worth all of that money as yeah, opposed to somebody yeah. who makes, I don't know, 20 million less, but it's still really, really good. Yeah. You know, what happens is a lot of the times um, there's a real difference between the individual founder who is the CEO as well. This is his personal pipe dream. This is everything. He, he's leveraged his home as collateral to get the initial small business loan. 
right? Versus the CEO that's hired into the role that has deep pedigree, that has a 30 plus year career in operations and revenue management and people management. And these individuals come with reputation that of course they need to protect. They're the individual on the front line should there be some type of problem, uh, some type of scandal or, or issue within not only their business, but also the industry. And typically these individuals are bringing deep value to organizations and can see the greater opportunity that's available for organizations to be successful. So it is definitely arguable that certain CEOs um, are definitely worth the value of the compensation that they are getting. But I think that there's a mishap in the culture, especially within founder communities, especially within startup organizations, um, you know, where founders who are operating with money and revenue that is not necessarily theirs and earned, but maybe given by VCs or outside funding, um, and they, they typically are a little bit piggish about the way that they will take a claim of their personal salary. Well, I was going to say, I mean, clearly something has, has changed in the culture, because if you go back to, say, the period right after World War II, and up until fairly recently, uh, you know, bosses always made, obviously, more money than employees, but the the gap wasn't nearly as wide as it tends to be now. So something shifted in the way people think, or at least the people who are making that kind of money. What do you think that thing was that changed yeah. from a cultural point of view? I think it's a really interesting topic, right? Like the numismatic value of, a, of an individual is now apparent. Um, it's not necessarily about the, the blanket contributions that they make, the skills that they possess, the network that they hold. Now it's about um, reputation and pedigree. And now it's about social followings. And now it's about how much is this individual actually worth to the organization's inbound revenue opportunity versus just what are they worth based on their skill set. And I think that's really the big stretch is, is now you have this common culture, especially with social, uh, social media being so prevalent, where an individual CEO can make their own claims, their own personal brand, and that brand has value, then that business is essentially buying from that individual. And then it becomes a game of retention for that CEO. You have certain CEOs that are able to go out to general market and are able to basically be auctioned for the top bidder willing to take their pedigree, their skill set and ultimately purchase uh, their brand recognition. Justin Abrams, CEO of Cause of a Kind. Justin, thanks. Top Gun, one of the most recognizable movies from the 1980s. It propelled Tom Cruise to even higher levels of stardom. After close to 40 years now, a sequel finally hitting movie theaters tomorrow, Top Gun Maverick. Movies based on the Navy's fighter weapons school called Top Gun. What's it like as a real Top Gun pilot? Let's talk to one. Guy Snodgrass, retired Navy commander, fighter jet pilot, Top Gun instructor, has the best-selling book, Top Gun's Top Ten, Leadership lessons from the cockpit guy. Thanks for being with us. So, you know, the movies, we had Maverick and we had Iceman and we had Goose. Uh, who are you? Oh, man, what a great question. You know, I, I think as a kid growing up, I always kind of stylized myself a little bit like Maverick, you know, thinking outside the box, maybe maybe not quite as big of an ego, but I think that's the character I, who I always really enjoyed. So wait, so did did seeing the movie, is that what kind of got you into wanting to become a, a Top Gun instructor yourself? Hey, I'll tell you what, when you're wearing the uniform, you're wearing a flight suit, you don't necessarily admit to that. But now that, uh, now that I'm out <laughs> in the private sector, I'll tell you straight up, I was 10 years old when the movie came out. I loved it. I still love it to this day. Real excited for the sequel coming out. But yes, I mean, myself, a lot of my friends who I flew with, the movie was a huge inspiration to kind of get you interested 
in the glamour and in the excitement of dogfighting and fighter jets. And so, yeah, that was absolutely a reason I wanted to go that direction. What did they get right uh, in, in the first one? And then that hopefully, you know, it carries on to the second one. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that definitely get right. Uh, first and foremost, the flying scenes are pretty incredible, especially when you think 1986, when the movie came out, what they were able to do, getting the, getting the, the camera into the cockpit, they bolted it onto the F-14 Tomcat so they could get some of those really iconic flying scenes. And so there was a great partnership between Paramount Pictures and with the actual Top Gun School in the United States Navy to make that happen. So I thought they did a really nice job, and I know that carries over into this sequel, Top Gun Maverick. The second thing that I really think they got right is, is the camaraderie. Look, there's there's no race to be the number one. There's no point system. There's no beach volleyball. But the just general level of camaraderie, the sense that you are you have this shared mission and shared purpose, I think, came through loud and clear with the first movie and will with the second one as well. But Okay, so now, but when you watch it, are there scenes where you go, no, you can't do that? Oh, sure. I mean, there's always something. I mean, obviously, when he when he throws on the brakes and the guy's going to fly right by, uh, that's a little bit... Can't uh, do that? Yeah, you can, but it's a little bit more difficult than they make it out to be in the movie. Um, you know, and, and there's, uh, you know, obviously, you're not going to be dating your instructor either, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well... You know, that's frowned upon. I, you know, I was I, I was going to ask you, I, I you brought it up, so fair question. A lot of people, I'm sure, are, are wondering... Do Top Gun pilots have as much sex as they do in the movies? Wow. Uh, well, hopefully they have more, right? I mean, it's a pretty cool <laughs> job. But, but look, I mean, it's a great the, answer. I think the reality is certainly not with uh, your coworkers, certainly not with instructors or students. You know, that's that's off the table. But, you know, what's really interesting to me is you've got the Hollywood glamour of, of what they play the movie up to be. In reality, a lot of the fellow instructors that I served with, they were married. They had kids. They were They were the consummate. You know, family men and women, they'd go home at the end of a long day and they wanted nothing more than to go to a soccer game or spend time with their family. And I thought that was really great, right? I mean, the movie plays up the the, the testosterone and the macho part of it and the, and the bar scenes. But the reality is these are really professional, hard-driven men and women who love their country, want to be the best at what they do. Uh, but they also have that softer side where they really care deeply about their families. What did you fly? And are you jealous of the guys that are flying now? Or are you sitting back thinking, you know what? Uh, the the planes I had were, were were of a different kind of character than, than what you than what we have now. Sure. So I I had the luxury, if you will, especially because of being a Top Gun instructor. I flew a number of different planes. I flew kind of the, the standard F eighteen Hornet, which is what I started out with when I did Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, I kind of moved up to the Super Hornet, which was the newest version of the F eighteen. Uh, so I flew all variants of that. I flew a plane called the F-16 Viper, which the Air Force predominantly flies. We used it as an, uh, like a to simulate the bad guy, right, as an aggressor airplane. I got a chance to fly some of our jamming aircraft. So had a chance to fly a wide variety of planes. And sure, I mean, I think what's really cool about what you're seeing in today's Navy and Air Force and Marine Corps is that you've got the F-35 Lightning. You've got these really cutting-edge airplanes, but at the same time, because they're so software-driven, it's like having an iPhone or an Android <laughs> phone where, hey, you want a new capability, upload some new software, yeah. and boom. And put the patch on it. Cool thing. Yeah. All right, so, yeah, so, exactly. yeah. so this is since this is true confession time, were there things in the air that you did because you saw it in the movie and you thought, i got to try that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, luckily, that's not the case. I mean, it's funny. You watch this progression, and I got to be a commanding officer of my own fighter squadron as well. So, you know, I, I saw it from walking in day one as a brand-new junior officer, a Navy lieutenant, 
you know, who was full of kind of some vinegar. And then you, you mature, you go through combat, which will definitely do that for you. And then you go be a top gun instructor. It's like a finishing school, a PhD level for professionalism. And then I continued on my career path and became a, a you know, a squadron commander. And then I worked in the Pentagon with secretary of defense, Jim Mattis. So, you know, it's fun to look back. I mean, you never forget what it was like being a, a junior officer and being a lieutenant, but it's great to watch as people mature. Cause I think there is that mindset. You have an expectation. It's going to be just a party time when you join. And then you realize, Hey, this is a real deal. There's lives on the line. You've got to be proficient. You've got to be great at what you do because people are counting on you. Uh, and so, yeah, as people mature, it's fun to be a part of that. And does a lot process. of that class, since it is such a high level, do they end up doing stuff like you did that, that they go to all these different areas of the military or private sector and they, they reach the next high level? They tend to. Yeah. I mean, the same. So in, at Top Gun, we always we basically selected students and we certainly selected our follow on Top Gun instructors based on three characteristics, talent, passion and personality. Right. So you want above average talent. You've got to be passionate about putting in the long hours and doing the hard work, and you've got to have a great personality because you want people to learn from you. You want them to seek you out for assistance, and if you're a jerk, well, you're not going to get that. And I think those three, those same three attributes are what people can carry forward into other elements of their military career or, as you mentioned, private sector, and will continue to make them successful there. And so you've seen, yeah, a lot of graduates go on to do some pretty amazing things. I'm curious, when you fly commercially, do you get bored? Oh, my gosh, I can't stand it. <laughs> it's too slow. I, I try to avoid it like a plague, right? Like a two-hour wait, you're, like, going through security. And it, that's one thing I loved about, you know, if you could jump into your own fighter jet, it's like you just go right in, you jump in, you take off. You yeah, man, that's do. great. <laughs> that is great. Guy Snodgrass, retired Navy commander, fighter jet pilot, Top Gun instructor, and the book Top Gun's Top Ten Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. See, that's what you want to do. Like Memorial Day weekend, you want to just go jump into your jet and fly off. I wish this thing would go faster. Yeah. All right. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow.